Um, we are working our way through a series of uh, talks about the questions that Jesus asked as recorded in the scriptures. Today, I'm going to be in Luke chapter 5 and 6. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke 5 and 6. Jesus is being challenged again in this passage by religious leaders. This time he's being challenged about his eating habits. <laughs> it's not the first time, and it won't be the last time, that he's challenged about who he's eating with and what he's eating and how much he's eating. I was actually reading a couple books this week, and here's a quote that I really enjoyed. Uh, it's it's a, a book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, and he writes this, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal, like all the time. And I, I, I pondered that for a moment, and I thought, that's my life. Like, I'm, I'm my, I'm, I mean, it doesn't look like it, but I'm actually on my way to my next meal right now. I mean, I think we all are, right? So it's a little bit of an overstatement. But this author isn't the only one to take notice of this. The Pharisees make the same observation. Luke chapter 5, they said to him, <clears throat> John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. So the contrasting of the fasting and praying with the eating and drinking is not a compliment, by the way, right? They're not saying, wow, you guys just are having a party all the time. That's so cool. No, they're challenging him. They even go as far as to call him a glutton and a drunkard. Now, Jesus has an explanation for the Pharisees, but to make sense of it, we have to go back a little bit and remember why he's here. Luke chapter four. He shows up in Nazareth. They hand him the scroll at his home synagogue. And he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Luke 4, Jesus is describing his mission using terms from the Old Testament about declaring and enacting jubilee. This year of Jubilee, he weaves together verses from Isaiah 61 and, and Isaiah 58. He's calling to mind for his listeners there in Luke 4 a whole bunch of biblical images of release, release of debts, release of sin, release from like liberation from powers of sickness, from the devil, liberation for the land itself. So that makes a little bit more sense what he says to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 5. He said, when they complained about his eating and drinking, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? That's another image from Isaiah 61, verse 10, about the wedding feast at the end of time. Jesus is adding image upon image to this mission of Jubilee. He's saying that the party that you're all longing for at the end of time, it's beginning right now. Like we're kicking it off right now. Did you believe that the freedom, the liberation that you're longing for? He's saying it's beginning right now. You don't declare a fast at the beginning of the wedding party. No, this is the inauguration, Jesus is saying, of the long-awaited freedom that you believe. It's all being set free. The disciples, they're supposed to announce good news to the poor. They're supposed to set the oppressed free. They're supposed to release captives. They're supposed to bring sight to the blind and heal the leper. They're supposed to declare the year of the Lord's favor. So why is it that Jesus is eating and drinking his way through Judea? Here's one of the, a quote from one of the other books I read this week. 
Every meal they eat points towards a feast like no other. A feast that makes present and permanent the coming reality of the world set free to find its home in becoming the home of God. Every meal they eat points towards that feast that's coming. You realize that's what we do with communion. Every time we take communion, we're not just remembering what happened on the cross. I love the way the cross is center stage today. If it's in your way to see the screen, that's actually good. (laughs) Don't whine about that because I'll just laugh. Communion is not just a remembering of the past. Communion is this longing for the future of what God's going to do. What if every meal, what if every meal you ate was like that? What if it was like every meal you ate was like a sacrament of meeting God and declaring and longing for the future? How might that change who you eat with and the meals you eat? All right, I got to move on. That future feast isn't quite here yet, right? So Jesus goes on to say, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. Fasting, in that sense, is this discipline of longing, this discipline of mourning the absence of that future table, the feast for the home for which we were created. That's why at the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples that he's not going to drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day I'm with you. He's like, we will fast. And we currently, you and I, we live in this in-between time. Jesus, the bridegroom, is absent in the flesh. The kingdom of God is here, but not yet fully here. The Jubilee mission is far from complete, as that song that we were singing today was longing for. And yet the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the living God is among us. Like right now, the Holy Spirit is here. The kingdom is coming. The world is being transformed. The Jubilee mission continues right among us with our active participation. So that's all set up for today's passage. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up, grab the Bible on the chair in front of you, turn to it in your device. You could be like Moses and open up your tablet. Never old, never old. Hey, we are studying Exodus in a few weeks, and so get used to that joke. It's going to be a good one. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. So one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And I love it. Jesus answers the question with a question. Again. He answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful for only priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, let's unpack this just a little bit. So, The problem that they got into by munching on some grain on this particular Sabbath day isn't a problem of like property rights. Like they're not trespassing. I think it's actually really interesting here. It's a little side note, but I, I think it's really interesting that in the ancient law, Deuteronomy 23 lays out a set of practices for the use of land to help support the needy. A provision was made that those in need could harvest grain. 
by hand and only what they need that day, not with a sickle. And they couldn't store up what they need for the week. That like grain was left on the stock for the needy to walk through the field and grab what they need that day. The goal, one of the goals is to realize that the cultivated land, the land that a farmer had worked hard for, like everything else in our lives, the places where we live and work, our income, the food we earn, to realize all of it is a gift from God. The farmer was to realize that those are the Lord's fields and the food that comes from it is the Lord's. The bread that we make from that comes from the Lord. It comes from the hand of God. What if we were able to see everything in our lives as a divine gift rather than strictly personal property? What if we were able to see that? Your abilities, your wealth of relationship, your, 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 your wealth of intellectual ability, the things that you actually own, the things that are in our lives. What if all of it was a gift from the Lord? By his gracious hand, meant, as John just said, to love our neighbors. Versus something I have to keep everybody else away from. I don't know, would that change anything? That's the whole purpose of why this land was set aside the way it was set aside for them. That's the reason God spoke to them in this way. Everything belongs to the Lord. That has such wide-ranging implications for like all of our lives. Implications for how we eat, where we eat, with whom we eat, how we allocate our resources, how we handle everything in our lives, how we think about consumption, how we think about consumerism. I could go on and on and on all day, but that's actually not the message here. That's just like a little side thing that's hidden in there as Jesus is challenging them in this, challenging us. How about, how about this? How about this week? Just pick, just ask the Lord, Lord, is there any one thing in my life that you'd like to tweak to change how I view what I think I own? Just asking that question. I've always found when I ask God really simple questions like that, he answers and I find myself doing things I never would have planned to do. It might change one part of your life. All right, Jesus and his disciples are snacking their way through the field. There's multiple times uh, in the Gospels where his students are accused of doing too much of the wrong kinds of things on the Sabbath with the wrong kinds of people, like healing people and all that kind of stuff. In this case, harvesting, Exodus 34, is strictly forbidden. Six days shall you labor, the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. The question is, is what they're doing actually Sabbath-violating work? Jesus could have gone on to argue several points. I love the way that Matt Crosman and Miroslav Wolf in that second book I highlighted pointed out that from the law, Jesus has several lines of defense that he could have used to show this is precisely the kind of work that does not violate the Sabbath. He could have defended the rights of the poor because he does in other situations. He could have pointed out how their traditions celebrate God's ownership of the land. And on different occasions, he does those things. But instead, he challenges them with a question of his own and a story they know quite well. And I love the way he does it. He answers them, have you never read? They're experts in the law. Of course they've read it. 
They've read it hundreds of times, right? They, they've read every scripture. But reading the scripture and seeing the Messiah in the scripture, reading the scripture and hearing the voice of God for your own life in the scripture are like miles apart often. Do you ever experience that? Do you ever read the Bible and think, man, I know somebody that needs to read this verse. That never happens to Brenda and I. <laughs> it happens to all of us, right? Like with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, I think Brian talked about that last week. It's, it's like they totally missed seeing, all the disciples did, seeing how all the scriptures point to Jesus. And so Jesus is using a story about David, that long celebrated king of Israel, and he's highlighting his own identity as Messiah. He's identifying with the great King David. So I know this is kind of like Bible nerd stuff. If, if this is over your head, stick with me. I'm gonna get to some really good practical stuff. And so Luke is actually doing an amazing job throughout his gospel of highlighting all the ways that Jesus is like David. So like, let, let me show you some, uh, I, some points of that. Uh, right at the very beginning, chapter one, chapter three, we see that Joseph, Jesus' dad, is from the house of David. The angel Gabriel says that Jesus is gonna receive David's throne. Zechariah, as he hears uh, about Elizabeth's pregnancy, invokes David's name. Bethlehem, the site of Jesus' birth, is twice described as the city of David. After talking about David here in chapter 6, a blind man shouts out uh, and calls Jesus son of David. Jackson preached on that passage from the Gospel of Mark a few weeks ago. Jesus uses an old riddle in chapter 20 to highlight the Messiah's Davidic identity, meaning that he's like David. Uh, Jesus highlights that to the scribes. Luke is showing that David is the key to understanding who Jesus is. And, 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 and so in doing this, this little story from David's life links that up even a bit more. This story comes from a long period in David's story between his anointing for Samuel 16 and becoming king, 2 Samuel 2. And there's this long period in between. And in between years, David slays Goliath. He fights the Philistines. He fights other groups of people. Uh, Saul tries to kill him numerous times. And what Jesus is saying by using this story is he's saying Messiah is anointed one, just like David was anointed one. It's the same thing. He's linking himself up with that. He's identifying himself not just as Israel's Messiah, which literally means anointed one, but as the anointed but yet, not yet enthroned one. He's in the in-between time, just like David was. So, like David, Jesus travels through Judea, rescuing people from their enemies. He's rescuing people from, uh, in his case, unclean spirits and illnesses. That's the Jubilee mission, casting out unclean spirits. He heals many in Capernaum, uh, Luke chapter four. He cleans a leper in chapter five, heals a paralytic later on in chapter five. Like David, Jesus is doing battle against the enemies of the people of God. Like David, Jesus is proclaiming and demonstrating release for the land and for the people. Like David, Jesus is anointed and receives the spirit long before he's on the throne. Like David, the gap between anointing and enthronement invites comparison to the established authorities, Pharisees and Sadducees for Jesus. In David's case, it was Saul. 
And the authorities in both cases try to have them killed, both David and Jesus. Like David, Jesus makes a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And they're both eventually enthroned. Remember Jesus declaring at his trial, Luke 22, but from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. He's talking about that same thing. Luke is dialing up the entire trajectory of David's life as a lens to understand the Messiah. That's what Jesus is pointing out right now to the Pharisees if they're listening. That's the whole thing. Jubilee is coming. This is all starting. So he's the anointed but not yet enthroned king. He's not fully calling the shots, and it's on purpose. The Spirit of God is on Jesus to set people free because the people, as well as the land they live on, needs a jubilee. God has not fallen asleep on the job, as we so often assume, when we don't get what we want when we want it. The kingdom of God is here and not yet fully here. You know, one of our views of God even today, is that he's some sort of cosmic puppet master. That like he's just kind of wiggling things around from up on top, calling the shots. Or that he somehow like gets it started, winds it up, and then just stands back to watch it play out. But that's not the picture we see here. We see God as the rightful king come to liberate a people and a land from an unjust and destructive tyrant, the enemy. He's leading, if you will, a divine conspiracy that starts little bit by little bit by little bit like a seed. He's leading, if you will, a nonviolent insurrection. And the way he does it is he lays down his own life and invites his followers to do the same. So, after briefly telling the story of David, Jesus ends with this line. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Th that word Lord... Greek word kyrios is the key word for understanding this whole passage. It's the very same word that's used of Caesar. Caesar, kyrios. Paul in Philippians, where is one of the first times that Paul writes it, he writes it to the Philippian church. And the Philippian church is where Caesar had progressed through town, come through town, and they were shouting, Lord Caesar, Lord Caesar, kyrios, kyrios. And Paul in that letter writes about Jesus as Lord. And make no mistake about it, it's totally on purpose. Literally in the Greek, it reads like this. Lord he is of the Sabbath, son of man. He's not just claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath rules. He's claiming to be the Lord for whom and to whom the entire Sabbath is celebrated. All right, let me make some really practical implications for you and I in today's world. Why are they snacking on the Sabbath? I mean, we might just think, you know, if they would have just like not eaten in the middle of the field, they could have avoided the conflict. How many of us are like that? Like, you know what? This is going to cause some conflict. Let's just not do this little thing. Brenda says that to me all the time. Michael, you knew that would happen. Did you have to say it that way? And my response is generally, yeah. <laughs> I know I'm broken. For those of you that do any Enneagram stuff, I'm an eight. I don't have wings, I have a cape, you know? I just like, <laughs> that's an Enneagram joke. If you don't get it, don't, you don't need to. Don't worry about it, right? They knew that this snack would produce a conflict. I love the way that Jesus is honoring their physical needs. He honors their hunger. 
in the midst of that. Do I honor God with the hungers, the appetites in my life? Remember Jesus' primary question? What was the primary question underlying every other question? What do you want? Good job. One of us remember. Yes, gold star. What do you want? Do I honor God with my desires and my hungers? Or do I just try to fill them myself? One of the things that was revolutionary in the Roman Empire about the Christians was the way that they treated sexuality. In the Roman Empire, just excuse me for a minute, if you felt, I can't think of an appropriate word, children in the room, if you felt like you wanted sex, you just went out and had it with anybody you wanted. They were amazed that the Christians withheld that to those that they were married to. That's one of the things that stood out first couple, two, three hundred years of the church. That's amazing. What about with food? What about with what we go shopping? When we feel like we want something, while we're watching a movie, we're filling up our Amazon cart. And then we get it like in three days if it's slow. What do we do with our, how, how do we honor God with our hungers? How do we honor him with our appetites? One of the problems is that we struggle with our physical limitations. We try to push back against our limitations. We don't see our limitations as a gift from God. Part of Sabbath is reminding us that we're not in control and that our limitations are actually a gift from God in some really powerful ways. Our hunger is a gift. We know what it is to be hungry, emotionally hungry, hungry for relationship, hungry for purpose in our lives. The list of our hungers and appetites is really long. I wonder how much of the time we don't realize that our hunger is actually there to drive us to the Lord. It's actually turn us to come to him. One of the things that I love to do when I fast is every time I get hungry, I'm like, Lord, I'm not sure I'm as hungry for you as I am for food. <laughs> like right now, the thing I think that would meet my need, like when, when you fast for like 24 hours, it's like, and a great way to do this is you eat lunch and then you skip dinner, skip breakfast. You know, you're napping in between. It's called night. And then you wake up and you have lunch again. And don't overeat, but like once a week, try that. And by the time you get to breakfast and it's moving towards lunch, you just want to like shove everything you can find into your mouth, right? But instead of doing that, what if you just, Lord, I want that kind of hunger for you because I know that you are the bread that really satisfies. What do you really want? Do you just want physical bread or do you want the bread of life? What do you want? And it forces me to ask myself that question when I do that. And then once a month, just put a whole day in between those two as you're fasting. And then am I honoring the hunger of others? How might Jesus be inviting us to honor the hunger of those around us? How might the resurrected Christ, the Lord of all, want to use you to honor and to meet the needs of those right around you? Hunger for food? Yes, absolutely. Hunger for relationship. Hunger for basic needs. Hunger to be seen, noticed. Loved, encouraged. I could go on hunger for a little bit. Let's move to bread. This hunger got me thinking about bread. 
Remember the first temptation Jesus faced after fasting 40 days? Luke chapter four, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And then Jesus, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. That quote comes from Deuteronomy 8. Look look at this. He humbled you, God says uh, to Israel, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. The word manna actually literally means what is it? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Two thoughts. The scriptures and Jesus are not saying that we don't need bread. Thank God, I love it. We do. And life is more than bread. Our sustenance comes from much more than bread. The Gospel of John refers to Jesus, you know, uh, as, as, as the Word of God. In Jesus, uh, the very presence of God has entered the world of humanity. The bread of life in Jesus, the bread of life, the very presence of God has entered the world of humanity. In the story that Jesus brings up, King David goes into the temple because he and his companions are hungry and they eat the bread of the presence. It's the bread of God. They're eating the presence of God. Jesus is saying, if David could do that, I could do that because I am the presence of God. Listen, our human hunger, our appetites are designed to point us towards the only things that can really satisfy and it's God himself. And we're meant to enjoy the gifts he's given us. He's given us amazing creation. The physical bread can definitely satisfy our physical hunger. And we're meant to enjoy that as a gift from his loving hand. But what if every bite of bread was also an experience of the presence of God? Talk about an all-encompassing way to worship God. By the way, if you're not eating carbs, just insert something else there like broccoli. I'm sure it's fine. Next word, Lord. (laughs) Later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus quotes King David from Psalm 110. He says to the Pharisees, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus goes on to say, David calls him Lord. How can he then be his son? Curios, the Lord, Yahweh himself, the God of Israel. When Jesus brings that up, that's who he's claiming to be, and all of scripture points in that direction. So here's my question for us. Is that your understanding of who Jesus is? Is he Curios? Is he Lord? Is he the one to whom Paul writes, In Philippians chapter two, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that your understanding? Because that's actually what it means to be a Christian. It's not just going to church. It's not just like, I don't know, dressing goofy. It's not just singing group karaoke. It's not just putting money in an offering thing. To be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, 
Jesus is Lord. He gets to call the shots in every area, in every realm of my life. Lord. And then he says he's Lord of what? The Sabbath. (laughs) Once we submit to his lordship in every area of our lives, we're meant to partner with him on this planet until he returns. That's actually a big part of what the whole Sabbath thing is about. When we reduce Sabbath to a day off, it's a complete misunderstanding of scripture. Let me show you something. Genesis chapter two. God created everything. Why did he rest? What exactly did he rest from? And what did he rest into? Why did he rest? Was he tired? Look at Genesis two. By the seventh day, God had finished. Yeah, we have it on the screen. Beautiful. God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The Lord God made the the earth and the heavens. What did he rest from? He rested from creating. He had finished his making. He completed it all. It was stunning. It was beautiful. It was really, really good. And the word rest there isn't just like a sit back on the couch, do nothing rest. It's more, this, this Hebrew word speaks more of settling in. Um, a, a great picture of this is what happens to the president of the United States after the inauguration. You know what happens to the president after the inauguration? They settle in to the White House. They begin the work of actually ruling. They begin the work of governing. God had created the humans. He had this beautiful place where they're now, you know, Garden of Eden, not the White House. And now they begin the work of caring for and nurturing all of creation. You can read about it in Genesis 2.15. That's a job description he gives him. It's really interesting because on that seventh day, there's a sunrise and a sunset on all the other days. On the seventh day, there's only a sunrise. There's no sunset. And that's a picture in Genesis of this jubilee mission that Jesus is inviting us into. Like, Sabbath is all about participating with God in what he's doing. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 4, says that there's still extended a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And then he goes on to unpack that that Sabbath rest is resting from our own work. And I would say John chapter 5, joining Jesus in his work. It's absolutely amazing what we get invited into. Sabbath is all about settling in to partner with God in his work. That's what it's about. And it's to remind us that we're all invited into. We are tempted to think we can accomplish this all on our own. We're tempted the ones to think that we can make Jubilee happen. That all of our things that we do can make that happen. The weekly rhythm of Sabbath reminds us who is Kyrios, who is Lord, who is Yahweh. And so here's the, day. here's the thing today. I think that there's an invitation for us to go into the field with Jesus and snack on the Sabbath. We're created to feast on the presence of God. And we can find it in the bread. We can find it in the fields. We can find him everywhere we go and with any person we interact with. Jesus told us the kingdom of God is within reach. It's at hand. It's available to us right now. And he's inviting you and I into the fields and we'll find his presence there. And remember, all of this ends with a banquet, a party, the best food, the best wine imaginable. I wonder if the bread just doesn't have, what's the thing that we, people can't eat in bread anymore? Gluten. I wonder if the bread's gluten-free, only still good. That would be amazing, right? 
It's a celebration of the presence of Christ, the, the presence of God at a banquet. All of history is headed in that direction. He invites us into his jubilee work, liberating the land, driving out illness, ending hunger, replacing unjust structures and evil powers that hold everyone in captivity. He invites you and I to eat of the fruit of the land in ways that build intimacy with God and with others to create homes where God and our neighbor can find rest and peace. And so part of what you're invited into right now, part of what I'm invited into is living out the reality of that coming banquet today. We're invited into that. And every part of life speaks to that. And there's so much good stuff there. And so when you get to the question, what do you want? Do you just want a loaf of Wonder Bread? Or do you want Kingdom of God bread? I just made that up, I don't know. (laughs) It was really dorky. It sounded really cool before I said it. About halfway through, I thought, oh, this is not going to work. What do you really want? That's the question. All right, that's what I got. Why don't you guys stand up? Let's pray for each other. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the way that you continue to invite us into that day that's not yet here. Thank you for the longing that you've placed in each one of our hearts for the different ways that we recognize that that jubilee is not yet here, the freedom. That longing for that day when we gather together with you and all your children, all your people, for that full banquet of the kingdom in new creation, which becomes the very home of God, becomes our home. So would you capture our hearts, God, with a vision for that jubilee, for that release of our lands and our neighbors, for that freedom to enjoy everything that you've made and to settle in to just caring for it and nurturing it alongside you? Would you help us to become even more mindful of the provision that you give us every single step of the way? Even the ability to step (laughs) is a provision from you. Would you make us ever more mindful of that? And would you fire the the cylinders of compassion in in our lives for everyone around us? Would you fire up that compassion that we would see people the way that you do and that we'd spare nothing the way that you spared nothing as we reach out to love. Would you fire that in us, God? All right, for those that are watching online, you can just click and begin to receive prayer. Uh, The team behind me here is gonna place some worship here in just a second. For those of us in the room, uh, I want you to come up and begin to receive some prayer. And there could be a whole bunch of things. As you think about your own hunger, your own appetites, as you think about the appetites of others, as you think about that just, I don't know, that broken need that we have to try to own everything we can and guard it from everyone else. Not seeing everything that God's given us as his gift to do with as he pleases. Even our very lives, his 
are a gift from him to do with as he pleases. So whatever the Holy Spirit's dialing up, I just invite you right, right now, let's come forward and get some prayer. Now, if you're on the ministry team to pray, you've been trained here to pray, come on up right now. We want to begin to pray for folks. And if you want prayer, just come right up with them same time. Come and get some prayer. I think God wants to do some really cool things in our lives. And for some of us, he's, he wants to reshape how we do meals, who we invite in, how we do it. He may even want to reshape what you eat. Probably not broccoli. He's not going to add that to the list, but other stuff. Holy Spirit, would you just give us freedom and creativity to follow you? For some of us, he wants to bring up specific groups of people that he deeply cares about, that he wants you to make a difference in their lives. One of our folks here, Anna LaCour, that happened to her when she went to Rwanda the first time. And like, there's a whole school going over there now where kids are fed and loved and cared for because of stuff that God did in Anna's heart and life. And there are hundreds of people participating in that. It doesn't matter what you think you can do. It just matters what God's inviting you into and you keep saying yes. And so Holy Spirit, would you give us that willingness to say yes to you and then trust you with the outcome? Trust you with how much it's going to cost and hurt. Trust you with how much stinking fun it's going to be. Lord, we turn to you right now. So come on up, get some prayer. I think we need some more prayer people up here. And, uh, and come, and, come and get some prayer. These guys will lead us in worship. Other than that, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming to the vineyard today. Have a great rest of your weekend.